So today's sermon is on uh, hearers and doers. All right, just just do it. This uh, this Sunday we're bringing our series, The Kingdom Come, to a close. Our look at the Sermon on the Mount, and I thought it might be appropriate for, to take a few minutes and kind of look back over the last few weeks to see um, what we've been reflecting on as it regards the sermon. You'll remember, perhaps, if you were here. This series started with a sermon by Phil titled, What Makes a Great Follower? What Makes a Great Follower? We say a lot in our culture these days about leadership. Uh, We've said so much about it that I'm not sure what it means anymore. I mean, if everybody's a leader, then who are they leading? I mean, it kind of part of what it means to be a leader is that other people are following you. And interestingly enough, in Scripture, it says very little about leadership. We have a leader. That person is Jesus, and we're called to be followers. So there is this sense in which Paul might say, uh, follow me as I follow Christ, but still, that's just a big game of follow the leader, isn't it? And at the end of the day, we have the one true leader, and that's Jesus Christ, and we are to be followers. We focused in particular at the close of that service on Mother Teresa. Uh, We ended with an image of her feet which had kind of been gnarled up because she would always kind of choose to give the good shoes to someone else. Kind of an excellent example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We followed that with a sermon called Happy, Happy, Happy. Um, It was a sermon on the Beatitudes, and it included um, kind of a vignette or smaller sermonette by Phil, and then... We kind of scattered around the stage, and there were eight of us that took, each took a beatitude in turn to kind of share what those beatitudes were. Jesus opens, or Matthew, as he's telling the story, opens the story on the Sermon on the Mount with this kind of radical inclusion. Jesus keeps using this word blessed, except he's applying it to people who generally we know to be not blessed. I mean, people who are poor, people who are mourning, people who are meek, uh, people who are hungry and thirsty for justice. These aren't the people that are blessed, right? We know what blessing is, and that's not it. Reminds us of, of the um, scene from uh, The Princess Bride, you know, inconceivable. You keep using this word. I don't think it means what you think it means. I'm sure there have been those who heard Jesus's Description of the Beatitudes. Jesus, you keep using this term blessed. I don't think it means what you think it means. We followed that uh, discussion on only the empire strikes back. Jesus' kingdom is a very different kind of kingdom. Uh, People like to quote, I often hear it quoted, that Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. As if to say that Jesus' kingdom belongs somewhere else. That Jesus' kingdom is for heaven and not earth. When Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, he doesn't mean that it's not in this world. For though we might not be of it, we are in it. Right? We're praying that the kingdom come on earth. That this is a real way in which we can live. The, you don't have to, um, not just don't commit adultery, but don't lust. Not just uh, don't commit murder, but don't hate. Not just love your neighbor, but love your enemy. The turn the other cheek, go the second mile. Give them your coat when they sue you for your, or give them your shirt when they sue you for your coat. The judge not lest you be judged kingdom. 
is a kingdom that Jesus calls us to live in now. And not retaliating is a great example of the way in which Jesus' kingdom is different than our culture's. So only the empire strikes back. Next, uh, we heard a sermon from Phil called Out of Control. Uh, It's that beautiful kind of passage that um, talks about God taking care of the birds. Uh, You know, we kind of, if you're old enough to remember the song, His Eye is on the Sparrow. We kind of love that, right? So that we need to trust in God, not trust in ourselves, not trust in kind of external um, systems. That is, it is our God who ultimately is in control. Then the following week, uh, we had a shorter sermon as well. Kind of been spoiling you guys. I'm going to have to preach a really long time today to make up for these shorter sermons. Uh, we did a sermon called City on a Hill. Um, Jesus says that the, the people of God are going to be light. A light put on a lampstand, not put under a bucket. That we are to be a city on a hill, and we express that city on a hill in a variety of ways. But the ways that we focused that day, we focused on global missions. We have, we have four teams of people who currently come to Oasis who are at various stages of getting ready to depart to other parts of the globe to kind of be the city on the hill in those locations. In fact, uh, Tyler and Lindsay Smith are leaving uh, for Paris on November the 29th. Uh, others are kind of in the, towards the front of the process of raising their funds and such. But if you would, remember to pray for them and remember to support them. Um, we'll continue to kind of update you about things in the bulletin or on the website. But don't, don't shy away from that commitment. If you felt that tug that day to support the missionaries coming out of Oasis, I encourage you to do that. Last week... Phil preached a sermon on truth or consequences. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's kind of easy in our culture to kind of say what pleases people. Um, But Jesus doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to say yes when we mean yes and say no when we mean no. And so today, as we come to the end of our series, we also come to the end of the sermon in Matthew chapter 7, The three final lessons of Jesus we're going to look at, but we're going to look at them in reverse order. So beginning with verse 24, hearers and doers. This is Matthew 7. Um, It says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Then the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house But it did not fall, because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell. And it was a great fall. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as their scribes. You see, Christianity is not a spectator sport. Christianity is not something that you just watch. It's not just an idea that you believe in. The Christian faith is something that's to be lived. It's something that's to be practiced. So as we go through all of these kind of ideas of Jesus, the fact that everybody's welcome, so you're all blessed, the fact that 
Um, we should not retaliate. We should not kind of live like the world. Uh, the fact that God's in control, the fact that uh, we sh- our yes should be yes and our no should be no. It's a different way of living in the world, but that's just the point. It's a different way of living. It's not simply an idea. And while Shia LaBeouf is kind of ridiculous in his, in his video, it kind of makes the point that we want to make, just do it. Do it. Follow Jesus. Love people. Be people of mercy. Be people of grace. Be people of forgiveness. This is what our Heavenly Father is like, and this is what we're called to be like. We have to resist the cross pressures in our society to be like others when we're called to be like Christ. We have to identify with the marginalized. I often talk about kind of staying in the center and being a third way. And I appreciate that, and, we, and we've talked about it, it seems like, on end the last few weeks. But at some point, we have to remember that the one who we follow was crucified outside the city walls. And if we're going to identify with the one who was crucified outside the city walls, then we have to stand up, right, with him and those with whom he stands up. So this is what it means to be wise, according to Jesus. It means to to follow his teachings, and not just following them intellectually, but following them practically. Later in the Matthew's Gospel, there's this passage of Scripture. It's not going to be on the screen, so just follow along. Matthew 23 says this, Woe to you, blind guides! who say, whoever swears by the sanctuary is bound by nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the sanctuary is bound by the oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold of the sanctuary that, excuse me, which is greater, the gold or the sanctuary that made the gold sacred? And you say, whoever swears by the altar is bound by nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on the altar is, is bound by an oath. How blind are you? For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the sanctuary swears by it and everyone who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by the one who is seated upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, Justice, mercy, and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain at a gnat, but swallow a camel. Phil made reference to this uh, passage in his sermon, Truth and Consequences. But I wanted to, to bring it back to us today because we can sometimes get caught up majoring on the minors and missing the major points of the gospel. Tithing. It's a great thing. Right? Giving. Church is kind of, I don't know, dependent on it. But the Pharisees could tithe on their mint, on their cumin, on their spices. Like I'm making a little dish here. Maybe I don't know what they're making. Whipping up some, some chicken uh, korma or curry. So they grab for the cumin, and they're like, well, I'm going to put this much in, but wait, a tenth of what I'm going to put in, 
I'm going to give to the priest because I'm a good tither. And Jesus is like, give me a break. You're tithing on your spices, but you've, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faith. So it's not only that we have to be hearers and doers of the word, but we have to be mature enough to discern what's the central point of the story. And for Jesus, the central point of the story is justice, mercy, and faith. Now, as if this doesn't make it complicated enough, because this is a lot easier to do than it is, uh, excuse me, it's a lot easier to say than it is to do. Um, most things are like, like that. Certainly Christianity is like that as well. So coming back to the beginning of, of the sermon, you know, Jesus starts with this kind of radical inclusion. Like, you know, you're blessed and you're blessed and you're blessed and you're blessed. And it seems like everybody's blessed, right? Everybody's in. So the, the bar of entry seems to be so low that Jesus just took the, the bar and just buried it. Like, we're all in. But then he follows that teaching of radical inclusion with this teaching of fairly high expectations about how we live. So on the one hand, we're all included. Everybody's welcome. Everybody's welcome at the table. Everybody's welcome in the church. Everybody's welcome at the altar. But then there's the, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say don't lust. Obviously, Jesus' standard is higher than the other. You've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I say don't hate. Look, it's fairly easy in Lakeland not to commit murder. Right? I mean, I do it all the time. <laughs> Live every day, haven't killed anybody. <laughs> but, but not hating is not so easy. And, and frankly, I find it fairly easy not to commit adultery. I mean, it's not like I'm on aisle six in Publix and accidentally it happens. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way, right? But lusting, uh, not so easy sometimes, right? You have to kind of be intentional about it. Loving your neighbor, <clears throat> well, loving your neighbor sometimes can be hard. <clears throat> but, but Jesus says, you've heard it say love your neighbor, but I say love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. So on the one hand, entry level's real low. On the other hand, once you come in, expectations is kind of high. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, it's time to step up. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's a doer. And to quote again Shia LaBeouf, just do it. Right? But we hear this idea that we have the doer, the one who built on the, on the rock, and the rains came and it all stood. And then we have the hearer, the one who has heard only but hadn't done. And that one has built on the sand and it just, the rains come and it just dissipates. It's gone. The passage just before this, though, says this. The NRSV uh, subtitles it concerning self-deception. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. This is perhaps the most disconcerting part of the entire Sermon on the Mount. I mean, as if the whole turn the other cheek wasn't hard enough. As if the um, loving your enemies wasn't hard enough. Here are some people who are saying the right things, right? They're saying to Jesus, Lord, Lord. Okay, that's me. But then they're also doing these mighty works. They're doing miracles. They're, they're prophesying. They're casting out demons. Like, I, I kind of consider myself like, like a good Christian, right? Like, I pastor a church, and, and I got a Ph.D. in biblical studies, and I teach Bible at a Christian college. Look, I don't do a lot of exorcisms. <laughs> Once again, aisle six on Publix. It's just it's not coming to me. <laughs> I mean, maybe there's some demons there to cast out, but it's not kind of my, not my deal. <laughs> what does it mean to say, Lord, Lord, to do mighty works, to, to good things, prophesying, casting out demons, and then Jesus to say, depart from me, I never knew you. What does it mean for Jesus not to know me? What does it mean for Jesus not to know anybody? I thought Jesus knew everything. Well, what do we do? I think that there are um, ways in which we can read this. It's one thing for me to know someone. It's something else for them to know me. I mean, think about that. There are a lot of people. A lot of people that... I say I know, I mean, you know, the famous people, whether it's, you know, they're famous because they're athletes or entertainers or authors or poets or artists or musicians, uh, people in the church, uh, people in the government, you know, famous people. I could say I know them, and what I mean by that is I could recognize them. I know their names. I know what makes them famous. But they don't know me. It's not like if I walked in the room, they'd be like, hey, Robbie, come on over. I saved you a seat. In fact, now that I think about it, I don't think I know anybody famous. I mean, I know all of you, but I mean, you ain't famous either. <laughs> so the, the, what makes us us Right? So Descartes would say, I think, therefore I am. This is his idea of what it means to be a human. But at the end of the day, trying to reduce humans to just thoughts is part of the problem, right? That's like the person who just heard and didn't do. It's a, it's a house built on sand. The evangelicals want to say, I, I believe, therefore I am. It's my belief in God that, that makes, makes me who I am. But I think that might be misguided as well. I am loved by God, therefore I am. I am loved, therefore I am, is the heart of, I think, 
the baseline of, of human, humanity in practice and humanity in life. God loves me, right? That, that, that makes me somebody. But then what do we do with these folks who they have this kind of practice but Jesus says, I didn't know you. Perhaps this goes back to that passage that we looked at in Matthew 23 a second ago where we kind of major on the minors and minor on the majors. We find ways that we think we have a system that represents God and in reality we're missing the weightier matters of just, justice and mercy in faith, Micah says, Micah the Hebrew prophet says, we know what God requires of the human being. To, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Sometimes our doing, which we'll bracket and say is necessary, right? We do have to do. But sometimes our doing ends up being a thinly veiled form of atheism because we think God's not going to do anything. So we feel like we got to get it done ourselves. So we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we just keep on getting on and we just think that we can go about building our own agenda as though that's what God would have for us. And we all do this to a certain degree, right? We try and use various parts of our lives as a lever to make the world to what we think it should be. I thank God that I'm not omnipotent. And I thank God that you're not omnipotent. Because who's to say what we might make out of this world if we just had our own way? I think we should be grateful that God has made us the way he's made us. And that we do have this kind of responsibility to participate. But that participation is rooted in this idea that we'll be in relationship with Jesus. Not just that we will know who Jesus is, but that we'll be familiar with Jesus. That we would have this life of commitment to Jesus, that we don't find ourselves being deceived by ourselves, right? self-deception, thinking we can just go on and get things done. This passage is preceded by one that inspired the uh, song at the offertory. Um, it begins in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, and thrown into the fire. Thus you will know them by their fruits. Now I realize that there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance uh, between that passage of scripture and the song. You can't judge a book by its cover. 
Because the song says you can't judge a book by its cover, and the passage says you can judge a tree by its fruit. I realize that. Don't, don't send me an email and say, hey, they didn't match. I like the song. I thought about it when I read the passage. I thought it'd be fun to listen to. But here's the, here's the deal. Um, apple trees produce apples, not oranges. Orange trees produce oranges, not pecans. Pecans grow on trees? Yeah. Uh, pecan trees uh, produce uh, pecans, not peaches. Right? And so, knowing uh, this, this idea, it's kind of rooted, it's interestingly enough, it's a, a way of being aware of false prophets. Like, that's the context. Right? But, not only do I want to be aware of false prophets, I want to be aware of whether or not I'm a false prophet. You see, the, the evil that's out there in the world that often makes me so nervous, I'm, I'm too often unaware of the ways in which I participate in that myself. See, that, that goes back to the problem of that omnipotence with us, right? I would be ready to just squash all evil out there. But what about the evil in here? I want to be a good tree. I want to bear good fruit. I want to be a hearer and a doer. So the being a hearer and doer is not, it's not that you get to choose one or the other. Like, I think I'll be a hearer today. I'll be a doer tomorrow. It's not hearers or doers, but it's hearers and doers. So what kind of fruit might we produce that we can measure whether or not we're living or hearing correctly? Right? Because that's an interesting thing in and of itself. We hear a sermon, we hear scripture, we think about Christian doctrine or theology, but then how do we measure whether or not what we're reading or what we're hearing or what our interpretation of those things are kind of on the mark or off the mark? Is it that we offer the most historically sensitive contextual readings? Is it that we're paying attention to like the literary cues in the text? I mean, what, what makes for a good reading versus a bad reading? One of the ways I think we can measure that, whether it's your belief or whether it's how you read scripture or whether it's how you understand something Phil and I say on a Sunday, if it produces in you and in us good fruit, then it's a, it's a good understanding. If it produces in you or in us bad fruit, then it's a, it's a bad understanding. Like we'll start with the premise that Christianity, that following Jesus, that scripture, that the church's doctrine, when rightly understood, is good. And then we'll work from that premise saying that our conclusions and how we identify and who we are and how we practice only measures up to goodness when it actually produces 
good fruit. Paul will say in Galatians, um, Beware of, no, excuse me, live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh, for what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, lasciviousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, uh, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast... The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. That's the good fruit, I think, that we can measure ourselves by and we can measure our community by. It would be really easy for me to wrap up the sermon right there and say no more. But I think, as your pastor, I would be remiss if I didn't comment on our current situation that we find ourselves in. There are a lot of reasons why you may have voted for one candidate or the other. There are reasons why you might not have voted. Right? About half the country didn't that were eligible. And whether your candidate won the election or whether your candidate lost the election... I want you to hear me as clearly as I can say. The gospel has not changed. Jesus calls us to be people of love. To be people of mercy. To be people of grace. To be people of faith. To be people of justice. God didn't come to the Egyptians and say, man, you guys are great and powerful. He came to the Jewish slaves and said, let me deliver you. Jesus is one who says he identifies with the poor. He says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was a prisoner and you came to visit me. He doesn't say, I had a lot of stuff and you came over. I was one of the hometown kids and you loved me. I'd never done anything wrong, so you were good to be around me. We have to live if we are to live a life of hearing and doing 
the gospel of Jesus Christ as members of the kingdom of God, ever so committed to the lamb, not to the elephant or the donkey. So I don't know if that comforted you, if that irritated you, My point is not to give an offense. I'm not trying to be offensive. I don't want to offend the Jew or the Greek or the church of God, as Paul says. But in whatever we do, and this message is about doing it, (laughs) I pray that what we do will be for the glory of God and that we will bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit.